Welcome, everyone. Uh, Heal Yourself with Michelle Moon. Today, our podcast, uh, we have a very special guest. Uh, his name is Adam Sud. Uh, he's a behavior, wellness, and nutrition expert, international speaker, founder, and CEO of Plant Based for Positive Change. Welcome, yeah. Adam. Oh, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have a conversation with you today. I think it's going to be wonderful. Yes, I'm so excited to have a conversation with you. So, you know, I, I met you probably in Sedona. I didn't yeah. get a chance to talk, uh, but I've been like seeing you like actively sharing the messages, uh, your, you know, your experience, how you transformed your life, uh, like such a powerful, inspirational message. And mm -hmm. now it seems like you have some like uh, practical method, how you can actually help people to change their life. Yeah. Yeah, it's been yeah, it's been quite a quite a journey. In fact, tomorrow is my 11 year uh, recovery date. So wow! Congratulations. Yeah. and um, I'm just I'm you know I'm I'm so I'm a very passionate person, um, and I and I get really I get really motivated and really um, uh, uh, I, I would say inspired to to just want to share what I know to be very valuable, and you know people can do with it what they want. But one of the things I'm I'm really passionate and, uh, about is is trying to dispel um, inaccurate stories about why someone is the way that they are. Right? You know, we have societies come up with stories all the time to try to explain things they don't understand, and that makes sense. That's a reasonable thing to do. It creates a a sense of safety around something that might be unsafe, mm -hmm. and it also creates a sense that you're trying to say, well, that's how they are, and I want you to know I'm not that person. It's kind of a way of, of establishing a sense of esteem amongst group. But I think that when we when we are so reliant mm -hmm. on stories that define individuals by what they struggle with mm -hmm. rather than why their struggle makes sense, mm -hmm. I think that we end up harming the population more so than just the person. And, and so I when it comes to addiction. When it comes to wellness in general, I'm very, I'm very passionate and I, and I tend to be very loud about it, um, about, I don't care what's right. I want to be accurate. I, I, someone else can be, I, I don't mind being wrong. Mm. I really would prefer someone tell me if I am, it would be wonderful. I find that to be a great thing because I want to be accurate more than I'd like to be right. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, I've been a holistic killer over 21 years now. So I dealt with uh, quite a lot of people who are suffering from, you know, like many different addiction. And yeah. then my guidance was always like not being judgmental about their behaviors uh, and also not focusing on how they judge, uh, how people judge them, uh, but just focus on how to shift their focus from being judgmental to building their yeah. love and self-care. Yes, very much so. Yeah, exactly. You know, if if your belief is to determine that some part of you is inherently wrong, mm. if you want to create an identity, if you want to, if you want to establish that there's an inherent part of you that is just it's broken, mm -hmm. that it will always be this way. What that means is now you're going to have to define how you behave and how you present yourself in the world as incomplete. Mm -hmm. That there is some part of you that just does not operate in a way that is trying to care for you. Mm -hmm. And so therefore there is an aspect of life in the world that you cannot be a part of. 
And that just doesn't serve long-term goals. Really what I tell people in terms of addiction, and we'll talk about it, is I would really like to stop people, stop uh, people from asking the question uh, when they're when they're watching someone who's struggling with substance use disorder or addiction. What we want to ask is, why won't you stop doing that? Mm-hmm. Right? That's a very, it's a reasonable question to ask. I get it. Why won't you stop using? That's not a very good question to ask. Mm-hmm. A much more valuable question to ask, and it's not it's not easy to answer, but it is the the better question is. Why does your use make sense? Mm. You can help this individual understand why it is, why it makes so much sense that they are so attracted to this use, that, that, that using is such an important part of how they move through the world. If they can get them to accurately answer that question, we have a much better opportunity to help this person to reorganize their life, their priorities, their values, so that over the course of time, their use becomes no longer necessary. Yeah. So the the recovery isn't a result of abstinence. Their abstinence is a result of their recovery. Mm. I think that's really, really important. It also helps from the perspective of the person asking the question. If you can get this person to explain to you why, Mm. if you were them, you Mm. would be doing the exact same thing. Now there isn't a us and them mentality anymore. Now there's just an us. We are equally the same individual. We have the same psychological and motivational architecture that's trying its best to figure out how to do well. And somewhere your behavior got misguided. Mm-hmm. Got misguided in believing, got a sense that what you're doing was somehow an act of self-care because that's exactly what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I tend to talk about this when I, I share my story. And so, you know, I'd, I'd love to share that with you and with your audience. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as I'm guiding people, uh, they have such a strong embedded belief system in their mind yeah. uh, about their self-value and their self-identity. It seems like they really, uh, they, they experience such a hurt and pain in their, in a really young age that that belief system is really like controlling their mind that it's very hard for them to feel the value. Sure. And then do things differently in their life. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, so I'll, I'll share an example. So, you know, I was, I was raised in, in, uh, in Texas. I was born in 1982, right? So I, I was raised in Texas. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm like a sixth or seventh generation Houstonian. Um, and I grew up in what would be considered a very hypercritical household. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had a, a father who is uh, an, an, a type A personality, a high achieving individual, Um, and my dad, this is very important. My dad is one of the most caring humans alive. And my dad has suffered huge amounts of loss in his life. He lost his father to cancer. When my dad was only 25, he lost his father to cancer. He would then go on to lose his mother in an accident and his sister would die due to uh, uncontrolled diabetes. She went into heart failure. So my dad, over the course of his life, has developed a very intense adaptive response, right? Which is if you notice something going on in a loved one's life that looks like their health might be going in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. and this is my perception of it, I don't know if this is actually, but it seems like seems like a reasonable assumption, is what he's going to try to do is he's going to try and interrupt that behavior. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that a lot of times criticism is easy. Mm-hmm. And so 
from a very young age, my dad and my mom as well were very critical of my weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting at age 10, they were critical of how I chose to eat, uh, the way that I dressed, all this. I was constantly being criticized. I felt like I was constantly being criticized. And what I started to believe was there are very real conditions upon mm-hmm. which you are allowed to love yourself. Mm-hmm. And starting at age 10, I started to be, this message was just kind of laid on top of me. Unless you are this, you do not have permission to be proud of who you are, to feel like yourself is, is worthy of esteem, you're worthy of, of, of love and acceptance. And so I grew up in, a, in an environment where I'd wake up into the presence of, of parents that it didn't always feel like a safe, secure, and hopeful place to be. It's constantly worried, when, when was the next criticism going to come? Mm-hmm. And by the time I was in high school, um, I experienced very intense bullying, okay? Mm-hmm. I get it. I was kind of a dorky kid. That's fine. I get it. Um, but this was the, you know, the mid-90s, late 90s, and so there wasn't the advocacy around bullying that there is today. And so I would get dropped off to school and I would experience verbal bullying, physical bullying, emotional bullying to such a degree that in fact, halfway through my freshman year of high school, when my parents would drop me off at school, the assistant principals would have to make sure I made it into the school safely. And so this is really important to understand. My life looked and felt like this. I would wake up into the presence of parents who loved me unconditionally, but also didn't always feel like a safe place to be. Didn't always feel like my emotional self was safe and secure in their presence. Mm-hmm. Then I would go to a school where I physically, I didn't feel safe, secure, or hopeful. It's a very terrifying place to be. Mm-hmm. Also emotionally, didn't feel like a safe, secure, or hopeful place to be. Mm-hmm. And I had been diagnosed with ADHD. So I've been given a diagnosis that said, guess what? We've, we found something else about you that doesn't work properly. Mm-hmm. And it's called this thing called ADHD. And in fact, we want you to know People don't want you to have this. Mm-hmm. They don't like it that you have this. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to give you this pill and it's called, it's called Adderall. And you're going to take it every single day. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was taking my, my, uh, my prescription in class. And as I walked out of the classroom, one of the, the, the guys who would typically bully me, he grabbed a hold of me. But it wasn't like he was going to physically assault me this time. It was more like a, hey, man, come here. I want to talk to you. And what he said was, listen. I want you to know the bullying is over. All right, talk to the guys, you're new, okay? You're a freshman, it's just the way it works. Um, so we also wanna invite you to this party this weekend. We can't wait for you to come. Please bring that Adderall that you're taking in class. Uh-huh. But here's the thing, I immediately felt relief because it seemed like I may have found some way to feel slightly more safe in my life. A little bit, like maybe, maybe I won't get harmed anymore. So I brought this Adderall to the party and that was actually the first time I ever used it as a recreational drug, mm-hmm. right? And when I used it, it was like in this immediate experience where it seemed like all of the things that were difficult in my life, right? I was an awkward, shy, slightly overweight freshman. And so it was very difficult for me to meet people. But when I used Adderall, I had this immediate unbelievable amount of confidence all of a sudden i felt very 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 confident in myself i also had boatloads of energy i noticed i had no hunger drive anymore because adderall is an amphetamine that's what the stuff is i could immediately start talking with people and people wanted me around 
Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. So I found a way to feel confident. I found a way to lose weight. I found a way to make friends. I found a way to not get bullied. And I found a way to present myself as the kind of person that had study habits that made my dad proud of me. Oh. And you take that personality who up until he used his life felt like a very unsafe, unsecure, and hopeless place to be. Mm-hmm. And also had the sense that tomorrow was also going to be an unsafe, unsecure, and hopeless place to be. And then you introduce that use. And all of those things that created a life that felt unsafe were magically cared for mm-hmm. with ease and repeatability. Amazingly, I was able to figure out some way to care for the things in my life that were making my life feel like a place I didn't want to be a part of, mm-hmm. while at the same time creating a biophysical response that gave my body a signal that tomorrow was a safe place to be. If you look at it from that perspective, the reason why I was so attracted to using is because the use looked and felt exactly like self-care. Mm-hmm. It isn't self-care, but it looks and feels exactly like it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a great uh, evolutionary psychologist. His name is Doug Lyle. I think you may have met him because he comes to Sedona. Mm-hmm. And he gives a talk about the biological mechanisms that compel behavior. Right? This psychological motivational architecture that, that that helps us figure out what's the right move to make. And in environments that we have evolved to do really well in, um, this this kind of guidance system mm-hmm. is really, really good at figuring things out. It knows exactly what's the right move to make, and it helps you figure out how to make it tomorrow really well. Mm-hmm. So like if we were to you know travel back 100,000 years ago and we were to find ourselves in kind of a tribal village of maybe 30 to 100 people, and there was an environment of caloric scarcity and things were either you know hard to get, you'd have to use a lot of time and energy to get it. Our, our, our biological mechanism of dopamine is really good at helping us figure out what's the most caloric dense choice in the environment, because when calories are scarce, more calories is a very good thing to do. It's very good. So I want you to understand that dopamine is a neurotransmitter that helps us get a feeling that whatever we've done is either good for our survival or not good enough for our survival. So the higher the dopamine lift, the greater the response. But nowadays, we find ourselves in an environment where there are what we'll call stimuluses or stimuli, mm-hmm. right, that have never existed in human history. In fact, they were never supposed to be there. Junk food, drugs, you know, pharmaceutical drugs. These things were never supposed to exist, and they've never been a part of our, uh, uh, our evolutionary story. We have no understanding of how to respond to these well. And our guidance system is still operating as if we were in that same environment that we were in 100,000 years ago, which is if there's a high dopamine response, this is a good thing to do for our survival. This must be the right thing to do. Let's go that direction. And so there's a great analogy for this. Let's say you go outside and it's nighttime and you've left your porch light on and you look at this porch light and what you're going to notice is that there are moths and they're fluttering to the light. And the reason why they're doing this is because they are actually designed by nature to use the brightest lights in the sky or celestial objects. They're using them for navigation. They have a guidance system in them that says bright light, move that direction. But when you leave your porch light on and now the porch light Mm -hmm. was never supposed to be in that environment, that porch light is now the brightest light in the sky. Their guidance system has been confused and now they're misguided and they hit the light and they flutter down, they hit it again, they hit it again, they hit it again, and then eventually they die. 
And we would look at them, we go, why in the world would this moth do that? Don't they know when they hit it that this is not a good thing? They hit it, it hurts, they flutter down, they do it again and again and again. This, this must be a crazy moth. There must be something broken about this moth. But if we were to pause and consider from a subjective point of view what's taking place inside that animal's mind, is that this animal is thinking and feeling like it's doing an incredibly successful thing when in fact it's self-destructive. What's happened is by messing with the environment, by introducing a supernormal stimulus, mm-hmm. a stimulus that was never supposed to exist, was never supposed to be in the environment, that animal now runs the threat of making very harmful decisions, potentially even fatal ones, thinking and feeling like it's caring for its future. Mm-hmm. That is what is taking place with addiction. Addiction is a supernormal stimulus that is disorienting cost-benefit analysis. Now, why would one individual grab a hold of a substance and the other one would just use it and then go about their life? Mm-hmm. I think that the difference between those two lies in the environment that they were raised in. Mm-hmm. Someone whose life has felt difficult and painful and traumatic, and it feels like an unsafe and unsecure and hopeless place to be, that light, that porch light is going to look like the most beautiful thing they have ever seen in their entire life. They're going to bond with it. They're going to worship it. They're going to think it is the savior they've been looking for for their entire life. And they will grab a hold of it. They will bond with it. They will create a true emotional relationship with this, with this behavior. It will mean the world to them. Mm-hmm. For the person whose life has the loving and meaningful bonds that give us the experience of feeling meaningful, meaningfully alive, when, when they have those bonds fully connected, they're going to look at that porch light and go, oh, that's really pretty to look at every now and then. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going back to my life because my life is a safe, secure, and exciting place to be. And my future is a place I'd like to be a part of. It makes sense to me. I can see it. I know it's this direction. And I want to care for how I engage in life because that future is somewhere I want to be a part of. Addiction is not Mm. a fault of genetics. Addiction is your psychology and biology doing exactly what it's supposed to do in an environment that has gone terribly wrong. That's what's taking place. And that's what occurred for me. And I grabbed a hold of Adderall. Oh my gosh. I can't, I can't tell you the feeling I got from this substance, what it felt to me. It felt like, it felt like the universe gave me a giant hug and said, you figured it out, man. You figured it out. You are never going to hurt again. You will never feel those feelings of, of self, of worthlessness, of despair, of uncertainty. You figured it out. Just do this. But by the time I was in college, things started to turn because what happened is the use, my need to prioritize the substance became so big that it had disordered my ability to care for myself. Mm-hmm. And that's when substance use becomes substance use disorder. When the use becomes so overwhelming, it takes up so much space in your life. Then now you can't properly care for your hygiene, your nutrition, your social interaction, your purpose that you want to share within a community of shared respect, your connection to the natural world, and your sense of your future have now been disordered. And now you're in a now you're in a now you're in a real problem. And that's where I was. And I ended up dropping out of school. I came back to Austin. Things got really out of control. I became a criminal drug addict. I was buying and selling drugs on the street. I got a secondary addiction to fast food. 
And by the time I was 30, I weighed 350 pounds. I had undiagnosed type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and life hurt. Life hurt in every single sense of the word, physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. Nothing about my life felt like something I wanted to wake up and be present for. And tomorrow always seemed like the worst place I'd ever been. And if you live in that reality long enough, tomorrow eventually becomes a place you do not want to be a part of. And on August 21st of 2012, I tried to end my life by suicide. And I can remember distinctly that event taking place. I can remember sitting on my couch and, you know, I, I didn't write a note. In fact, the majority of people who, who die by uh, suicide don't write notes. Yeah. So this is really important. I, I had, didn't write a note. I didn't try and call anyone. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't something I had planned on doing, but this moment I was overwhelmed you know, it had been five, I was up using for five or six days. And I just felt like I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't be a part of my life and I can't figure it out. I just didn't understand how in the world, what once had seemed like the greatest solution I'd ever found had become the most overwhelming and crippling problem I'd ever experienced in my life. So I grabbed a handful of pills and I swallowed them. And um, probably about 30 minutes later, I start to feel uh, strange. Feel, you know, I, I, you know, overdoses wasn't, wasn't something I was new to, but this felt distinctly different. And I tried to stand up off my couch. And as I did, my entire right side of my body cramped. I got stabbed. It felt like I got stabbed in the right side with a hot knife. And I start to, to try to stand up and I start falling forward. And my vision starts to go black. And I have this overwhelming fear and um in reality that i'm i'm experiencing the last second of my life that's what i felt like and i'm going to tell you the feeling that i had and i don't mean the physical description i mean the the feeling of believing that you're witnessing the last second of your life completely disconnected from everything that's ever meant anything to you alone in a hoarder's like apartment it was the most terrifying and painful experience I've ever had. And I, I, I don't know how long went by, but I woke up uh, in a puddle of my own vomit in a pile of fast food garbage. And it took me the better part of an hour to really kind of understand what had taken place. And once I did, I can't describe the amount of relief that I felt. And I found that to be a little confusing at first because I honestly believed what I was trying to do was I thought I was trying to end my life. I thought that's what suicide was. I always heard the story of suicide is someone ending their life. But the reality is that that relief could only be possible if there was something about myself and my life that I loved enough. Something about myself and my life that was meaningful enough that even though I knew today was going to be the most painful and difficult day of my life, I was relieved to still be a part of this world. Um, I tell you this with certainty that suicide is never someone wanting to end their life. It is always someone trying to end their pain, mm -hmm. the pain that they, they, they don't understand. They don't, for a lot of them, they don't know how it got to be that bad. They don't know that it's okay that they don't know how it got to be that bad. And they also don't know that it is okay to ask someone for help. 
And the number one reason why they feel like it's not okay is because typically the thing that they're struggling with is wrapped in enough stigma that they're afraid that if they were to actually and honestly call someone and tell them everything that's going on, that person may not want them around anymore. Mm -hmm. That may be the thing that tells everyone in their life to never be around them again. And that's really, that's a very, I think that this is really important mm -hmm. for that individual who's struggling more so than a solution to their problems today. They want to be reminded that the people in the world who matter the most to them want them around, that they matter to this world, that there's a community that will welcome them home if and when they're capable of coming home to them, that they've not been forgotten by the people who matter the most to them. That is really important. If you're a person who knows someone who's struggling, if you're a person who's struggling, um, I want you to know this. If you, I'm gonna say this, if you know someone right now, if you are a person who loves someone who's struggling, I just want you to call them or text them or email them and just say these words, I love you. I love you, whether you're using or you're not. I love you, whatever you're going through, I love you. If you're not willing to change, if you don't know what to do, I love you anyways. I don't know what to do, but I'd be willing to help you figure it out if you need me. What, this, what that statement says to that individual who's struggling is that you are more to me than what you struggle with. And in fact, you always will be and you always have been. And I'm not here to solve the problem because I'm not an expert. That's what you're saying. I just want you to know, I will love you through the whole journey if you choose to go through it. That is a very powerful thing to do. And when I picked up the phone that day and called my parents and asked for help, that is exactly what they said to me. Wow. And so they helped me check into treatment about two weeks later. I checked into rehab where I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol. I was put on a cabinet's worth of medication. And um, I, I remember, I, don't, I didn't have any authority to believe differently, but I was sitting in the doctor's office. This was about, about 72 hours after I checked in. And they were saying, listen, Adam, you're, you're going to be a diabetic for life. You're going to have heart disease for life. You're likely always going to be overweight. You may, you may not always be class three obesity, but you'll, you'll definitely always be overweight. And there's nothing you can do about this. But here's the thing. If you want your life to get better, you have to stop using drugs. That's what they said. And I said, I don't, I know, like I said, I'm telling you right now, I don't know why I believed it. But for whatever reason, when they said it to me like that, I felt angry. And the reason why I felt angry was like, what are you talking about? I know exactly what my life feels like when I don't use. That's why I use. Okay. Mm -hmm. And how in the world are you going to tell me my life is going to get better if I stop using. You just said, I'm always going to be diabetic. I'm always going to have heart disease. I'm always going to be overweight. My future looks like a terrible place to be. Why in the world would I now have any urgency to care for myself if my future looks that bleak and hopeless? I, I, I for whatever reason, I, I just remembered I had gone to this event about two, about two years earlier with a man named Rip Esselstyn, who you know. Oh, yeah. And, um, he had talked about this thing called a plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. A plant-based diet was essentially this, this opportunity to take charge of your health. They had luminary doctors and thought leaders, people like Doug Lyle, Dr. Michael Clapper, uh, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. And they had a very specific message. They said, nobody gets sick because they get old. People get sick because their environment creates disease. 
I believe that. <laughs> that the majority of the reasons why people get sick is the appropriate response to the environment that they have been living in. Mm -hmm. And that if you are willing to intentionally, appropriately, and accurately reorganize your environment calorically, mm -hmm. you can either prevent and or reverse your mm -hmm. disease. In fact, the reason why I had diabetes wasn't because I was born with diabetic genetics, mm -hmm. because that's exactly what's supposed to happen when you eat fast food regularly, when you do copious amounts of drugs and you don't care for yourself. That makes complete sense. Remember what I said at the beginning, why does your use make sense? Ask the question, why does your disease make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I said, this is what I'm going to do. I don't know anything about mental health. I don't know anything about addiction at this time, but at, I was 350 pounds. So believe me, I knew how to put food on a plate. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to decide right now that the foods that I put on my plate are going to look exactly like that plant-based diet that Rip Esselstyn described. I think this is really important. People think that changing your life is a, it requires you to have huge amounts of discipline, unbelievable amounts of self-control. And yes, those things are required in small, in small amounts. But if you really want to do well, if you really want to do this well, instead of trying to be so disciplined and have so much self-control that you can outcompete your current environment in order to make healthy decisions, instead mm -hmm. of doing that, Make your environment look so much like the life that you want mm -hmm. that your environment no longer requires you to be disciplined in order to be successful. Your behaviors are 90% of the time a response to the environment that you are in. In fact, they've done studies on this. Mm -hmm. Cornell Food Labs did an amazing study where they, what they wanted to do is they wanted to figure out what, how many food decisions do people make per day? And they figured out people make about 240 food decisions per day. Now, that doesn't mean they're eating 240 different things, but it's like, oh, do I want this, 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 or this? And then I make this choice. That's like four choices. That's four decisions. They could have cho chosen these. They decided no, 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 yes. So that's four decisions. Hmm. And what they said is of all of those 240 food decisions, only about 10% are conscious decisions. 90% are completely unconscious decisions. They are a result of the environment and what the environment allows you to do. Now, diet culture, typical dieting asks you to be as disciplined as you can with the 10% and hope that you can outcompete the 90. However, evolutionary psychology and work like the Blue Zones with Dan Buettner says, if you can change the 90%, you're going to be successful with ease and repeatability. And that's really important. So what I decided to do is I wanted to adopt a plant-based diet so I needed to make sure that I had all the foods that I liked surrounding me all the time. So I moved into a sober living facility. I walked up to, uh, after I did 37 days in rehab, and then I moved into a sober living facility in Santa Monica. And the way that it works there was uh, you would just walk up to the house manager and you would tell him, hey, listen, this is what I want to eat. And he would send people out to the grocery store. They'd buy all the food and they'd stock in the kitchen. So I walked up to the house manager whose last name is actually Hamburger. <laughs> and I told him that uh, I really want to do this plant-based diet. Can you give me these like five things? So it was like five foods. It was oatmeal. It was rice and beans. It was like the frozen veggie mix, right? And it was fruit. Get me these foods. I want these foods. So they got them and I would get up every single day and I would eat exactly that for every meal. Essentially what I'd done is I had made it so simple and so obvious to do the healing thing that it was nearly impossible not to do so. That's a really powerful thing to do. If you can just simplify your actions down, mm -hmm. 
and make it so simple and obvious. It may not always be comfortable. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, if you want to change your life, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable, period, end of story. Changing your life requires you to do something incredibly extraordinary, which is to step outside of what you comfortably do. It's not an easy thing to do. It really isn't. There's got to be a willingness to say, even if right now it doesn't feel right, I know the decision is the right thing to do. Yeah. And so we talk a lot about in, in, in uh, lifestyle change, you know, what's your why? I use a why as a motivation to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And, you know, from the outside looking in, a person would look at me and say, oh, I know why he wanted to do this. He weighed 350 pounds. He had diabetes and heart disease and he nearly died from substance abuse. That's why he's changing his life. No, not at all. I don't believe negative consequences motivate long-term change. I believe, and I, I, I know for a fact you're going to agree with me on this. Negative consequences do one very important thing. They let you know that there is something loving and meaningful in your life that is being threatened. They let you know that there is something important that if you don't act now could be taken from you tomorrow. Whatever those loving and meaningful bonds are, whatever those loving and meaningful things, that's why you're going to do whatever you do. I believe that fear and anger can be great catalysts for short-term action, but love is the only thing that will anchor you into long-term change. It's it. That's the only thing. And I, I'll give an example. If you're trying to help someone figure out why they want to do something, you could ask them. You could say like this, uh, hey, listen. I'm trying to get my son to start wearing protective gear while he goes skateboarding. And I don't know why he won't do it. I just keep getting angry. I go, okay, let's figure this out. Why do you want, why do you want your son to do that? Well, because, you know, they keep, what they do is if, if he doesn't wear that, he could fall and get hurt. So why does that matter? Well, if he falls and can, gets hurt, he could have a really serious injury. Why do you care about that? Because if it's serious enough, he could be in the hospital. Well, why do you care about that? Because if he's in the hospital, something could happen to him. Why do you care about that? Because I love him. That's it. You can't go further than that. That is the deepest investigation of motivation right there. Once you get to, I, because I love, then you found the thing. Mm -hmm. When you get up every single day, is what I did. I would ask myself, why is it that I'm choosing this? Mm -hmm. I'm choosing this because I want to know what it feels like to wake up into a body that I love and care for. I want to know what it's like to wake up into a life where I have people in my life that want to be around me and that I want to be around. I want to have that loving and meaningful social connection. And this was a difficult thing to do at first, because believe me, like a lot of people, especially in Western cultures, we're raised to believe that our bodies are our adversary. We're raised to believe that you got to get up every single day and find out what, what isn't okay about yourself, hate it enough, and then through restriction and overexertion and self-punishment, try to outcompete those problems about yourself in order to be acceptable to other people. And that happened to me. I get it. But I remember I was having a conversation with my house manager, and we were actually talking about the day that I survived suicide. And he said, Adam, you know, talk to me about this. And we were talking, we went over it. And, and I don't know why and how this came to me, but I, I kind of had this epiphany. I said, wait, hang on a second. I actively, I intentionally took so much drugs for the intention that my life would stop. 
And my body said, absolutely not. What if, instead of being the greatest adversary I'd ever had in my life, what if my body is the greatest ally I've ever had in my life? What if the entire reason I made it through 10, 15 years of substance use disorder, taking huge amounts of drugs, doing terrible things in my body, what if the only reason I made it to age 30 at that time was because my body never gave up on me? What if the entire reason that this vessel exists mm -hmm. is to make sure that I live to tomorrow? If that's the case, my body is the greatest ally I will ever have in my entire life. And if that's the case, I need to be an appropriate caretaker. And that's when I started to adopt the role of what a good, very good friend of mine, she's a researcher, her name is Tara Kemp, says a caretaker role, mm -hmm. where instead of figuring out what not to do for your body, what if you were to appropriately care for it? What if every action was an act of caretaking for a body whose entire purpose is to make sure that you make it to tomorrow really well? So you can get up and you can do the things that you love to do. So you can see the people that you love to see. So you can talk to the people that you love to talk to, right? So that you can, you can smell the things that you love to smell and you can hear the things that you love to hear. What if every action that you engage in is an act of caretaking, loving caretaking for a body that gives you the opportunity to do that every single day, then you would never restrict that ally. Mm -hmm. In fact, you'd want to know exactly what to do for that ally. Mm -hmm. I told myself, I'm never going to avoid meat, eggs, and dairy or drugs, never in my life. What I'm going to do is actively replace those decisions with decisions that look like caretaking for a body and a life that I want to be present for. As a result of doing that, Within five months, I completely reversed my diabetes, my heart disease, my erectile dysfunction. Within 10 months, I lost over 100 pounds. And within one year, I was off of every single medication I was put on rehab, the antidepressants, the mood stabilizers, the sleeping medication, the anxiety medication, everything. And um, as I said, tomorrow, I'll have 11 years of active recovery. And I want to say this. This is really important. I don't believe that recovery is in the singular pursuit of abstinence. I think that recovery is in the intentional and appropriate reconnection to a life that feels so safe, secure, and hopeful and exciting that use becomes no longer necessary. Mm -hmm. That's what I think recovery is about. What I wanted to do after I got sober and after I went through recovery was I wanted to understand, is there a way that we can use your caloric environment to aid in your opportunity for recovery to be more exciting, more hopeful, and more secure. And I ran a study called the Infinite Study, which is the very first controlled trial investigating the effects of nutrition on early addiction recovery and mental health outcomes in treatment facilities. And we found out that actually it does play a role. Big surprise, right? The part of the world that you decide to put into yourself has a role on how you feel in the world. What a shock, what a surprise this is. Mm -hmm. But what we found out is that fiber is the biggest differentiator. Mm -hmm. That we, uh, we ran a plant-based uh, intervention diet. So the, the, the treatment diet was a, a plant-exclusive, fiber-rich diet. And what we found is that at about 10 weeks, you saw statistically significant increases in self-esteem, self-compassion, and resilience. Now, one of the things I like to share with people is that there wasn't a single measured outcome where the entirely plant-exclusive group did poor or did worse than the other group. And in fact, in every single variable, the plant exclusive, exclusive group did as well or better 
than the other group. So this is important. I'm not saying that a plant exclusive diet is the best diet in the world. What I'm saying is if you are motivated to try living a plant exclusive lifestyle, there is no downside to doing so even in recovery. And in fact, in certain outcomes, it might actually be a better choice for you. So our outcomes that we looked at, resilience and self-esteem and self-compassion. If you were to choose three variables that could predict long-term recovery, the three variables you'd want to see high levels in are resilience, self-esteem, and self-compassion. So we're really excited about it. You know, it's a short-term study. What I think is, if you're trying to change the way that you fuel yourself, don't worry about carbohydrates, don't worry about protein, don't worry about fat. But one thing you should focus on is, are you getting enough fiber? Are you getting 35 grams of fiber per day? And is that fiber coming from real food and from a variety of real foods? If you're doing that, you're likely going to do really, really well. Wow. <laughs> Adam, you're yeah. so great. Lots of information. I feel so much passion and conviction about oh, uh, the guide. So while you're sharing about um, the mental like crisis that you went through, yeah, and made a decision to commit suicide. I'm sure there are so many people who are going through that state of mind, you know, including yeah. myself. And I think even though everyone knows intellectually how what is the right answer to make yeah. a better life, just making that positive shift, like yeah. how can I do things differently for the better? I think that shift really like challenge. Um, it's very challenging for very. most people. Yeah. How did you mentally like create that positive shift, even though yeah. it was so miserable? That's a really great question. Um, I think one of the reasons why people run into to kind of roadblocks on this journey is because they think that they have to start feeling better all the time immediately, mm -hmm. right? That that in fact, if they do things wrong or if things start, if one day doesn't go well, that that's maybe an indication that they've failed mm -hmm. or that, you know, they're, they, that they haven't got it yet. Mm -hmm. One of the most important things is like, if you're a person who's starting this journey, number one, do not create any sense of how long this is going to take mm -hmm. Here's one. or what success should look like. Yeah. The reason for this is number one, you've never done this before. So how can you accurately predict outcomes? You can't. Right. Exactly. I would say what I would like most people to do is try to occupy the mindset of imagine you are a researcher. Mm -hmm. Imagine you're a researcher and you're trying oh. to figure out which is the right direction to go. Mm -hmm. If you're a researcher, what you're doing is you're not trying to figure out how to be perfect. You're trying to run short-term experiments where you figure out either something is accurate or is inaccurate in serving your goals. Mm -hmm. What that means is if you try something and it doesn't work out well, you're excited to find that out. You're excited to find that out because next time in that situation, you're going to go a different direction, right? So instead of saying you failed, what you'll say is, oh, that system doesn't work for me. I'm glad I know that now. I'm going to try a different system. People themselves are not failures, especially mm -hmm. people who are going through the extraordinary journey of changing their life, mm -hmm. especially someone who's recovering from substance use disorder or extreme mental illness like like clinical depression or suicidality, it's mm -hmm. a very hard thing to do. You have, to have some grace with yourself. Mm -hmm. You also have to say, 
I have no idea how this is going to turn out. I'm actually really glad that I never told myself, like, I want to lose like X amount of pounds because I never would have predicted that I would lose 175 pounds. I never, in my wildest dreams, would I ever believe that. But what you have to do is you have to have, there's, there's, there's a level of closed-mindedness that is required in recovery. And I mean this in a good way. Before you start your recovery, you have to be very open-minded. You have to ask the universe, which direction should I go? You're going to keep your eyes, your ears, your nose, and all your senses open. You're going to listen. You're going to hear amazing thought leaders. They might hear you and they go, oh, wow, that sounds like a really good idea. Once you've decided you're going to go with Michelle, you need to close yourself off to the rest of the world. And you need to do exactly what she says to do. And you need to do it long enough so you can find the value in that system, right? If you're always jumping from one system to another, to another every week, you're never going to know what system offers what value. So changing your life does require you to be a little bit close-minded. You need to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it well. You don't have to be perfect, but you got to get an A. This is what I mean. You got to do really well 90% of the time. You've got to, right? You, no one needs to get an 100% on every test in order to get straight A's in a class. But we do have to be honest with ourselves. We have to do it really well. And then you have to have faith. You have to have faith because you have no idea how long this road is. Maybe yours is short. Maybe it's long. Right. What I mean by you have to have faith is you just have to have faith that as you take each step, the next necessary part of your path is going to reveal itself. You have no idea what it looks like yet, but you have to have faith that as you keep walking that path, it's going to continue to unveil itself to you and just know that it's not supposed to be easy. This is not supposed to be easy. That doesn't mean it's always difficult, but it's not supposed to be easy. That's okay. You're a strong person. Believe me, I know you are. If you're listening, I want you to know, number one, you are not broken because mm -hmm. of what you struggle with. Right. Your pain makes sense. You make sense. What you want to achieve is likely very, very possible for you, and it will take time, and do not ever ever, ever give up on yourself. There are people in the world who are better off because you're in it. Mm. You're not just better off because of other people. Other people in this world are better off because you're in it. They may not have met you yet. Maybe you're supposed to meet that person whose life you changed in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years. Don't rob the world of your potential. Believe me, I understand how you feel. I've been there. I felt what it's like to not want to see tomorrow, but there are far better options available to you in life than there are in ending it. And it may not always seem like something you want to do, but believe me, I'm that guy. I'm that guy who used to tell people, you know what? I don't care. This is how I live my life. And if doing this cost me 10 years, fine. I don't care. All it'll cost me 10 years. I used to say that all the time. I used to say that to everybody. I used to say that to people that I loved. And I think about, man, if I had been successful on August 21st of 2012, oh my God, what would my family not give up for 10 more years with me? You know, what would they do for 10 more days with me? I mean, think about it what we tell ourselves has consequences not just on us 
it will have consequences on every single person that cares about you. And you may not feel like it's, it's easy to do, but if you can simply give yourself the faith and the grace to go one more day, just go one more day, I, I promise you, if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to say, I'm not trying to figure out how to do this perfectly, and that you're not trying to be right, you're trying to do well, you're trying to figure out what's accurate, change, massive, profound change is very, very possible for you. I think number one, if you want to change your behavior, you have to change your environment. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. It's also not a thing that's available for everybody. But I think it's a very big requirement that the majority of the behaviors and the majority of the way that you choose to act is a result of the environment that you find yourself in. So your physical environment has to change. Number two, and I didn't, I didn't think about this until, you know, the last few years, but your social environment has to change. Right. I said that uh, if you want to do well, you need to make your environment look like your goals. If you want to do well, you need to make your friends look like your goals. Yeah. They don't have to, they don't have to, they don't have to do everything exactly the way that you do, but it, it has to look enough like your life. Right. And the reason for this is because when you're in the presence of people whose life looks enough like yours, what that means is just being in their presence is encouragement to continue acting in alignment with those values and priorities, right? That in fact, how you choose to move through the world is uh, a, an affirmation. It's mm -hmm. a contribution to them and they are a contribution to you. And there's a sense of esteem that is derived by acting in a way that seems valuable to the people around you. And so your friends, your social circle has to look enough like the life you want. That doesn't mean you have to, you have to get rid of your old friends or your current friends. You don't have to get rid of them, but you might have to choose to spend less time with them for now. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. I'm sure it's very difficult. It's not <laughs> always easy. To make that change, yeah. but this is really necessary to create right. an environment for them to you know, create a positive changes every single day. But that's my whole point. People spend so much time, energy, and money trying right. to create sense of peace in at home. Right. They're trying to go out and they're trying to purchase it. They buy, they buy like this, you know, red light device is supposed to calm your nervous system or, or they do cold plunges. They're spending money constantly trying to purchase their peace. Right. Instead of doing that, look what happens when you intentionally design a peaceful environment. Right. When you design a peaceful environment, your experience is a result of the environment. You're not out competing it anymore. I think that's the big difference. When you look at, you know, uh, like in Okinawa, Japan, where there's the blue zone, one of the blue zones in Okinawa, Japan, there's not a single person there going out every single day and purchasing like a bottle of supplements or a juice cleanse or any of these things in order to try to add years to their life. What they've done is they have designed an environment that encourages longevity. And as a result of living in that environment, they live long and they live very well. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have to design an environment to look like the life you want. Yes. So Adam, it is very fascinating for me because, you know, you probably use food, food, food addiction as a way to kind of punish yourself as yes. a behavior of self-destruction. Mm -hmm. And then now you're using food as, you know, self-love and self-care which yeah. is a big shift with the same substance. Yeah, yeah. So that's my whole point. It's, it's, you know, what I was doing before with food was I was, I was being my, I'll tell you, I was being misguided. 
Mm-hmm. I have a, a guidance system inside of me, this dopamine, uh, you mm-hmm. know, neural pathway. That when I would eat junk food, I would get a, a huge lift in the dopamine circuitry, mm-hmm. and that lift in the dopamine circuitry creates a very physical response. And it's it, what it is. It's a reward pleasure chemical. Dopamine is not just a pleasure chemical; it's a reward pleasure chemical. And what that feeling is that you get is that that feeling is a signal to your body that says whatever you've just done feels like the right thing to do. And it creates a sense of calm and it creates a feeling that somehow you're not sure how you did it, but somehow tomorrow might be a safe place to be. So when your life is spinning out of control, when your life doesn't feel like a safe, secure, hopeful place to be, and when your future looks so painful that it doesn't feel like something you actively want to be a part of, What urgency do you have to care for your life with healthy food, especially when junk food can care for your pain as Mm -hmm. well as it does? Mm -hmm. That's where your guidance system gets misguided. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, doing the wrong thing somehow feels incredibly right. And when doing the right thing feels incredibly wrong. I want people to understand this. If you are feeling like you have food addiction, if you're feeling like you have drug addiction, you are more so experiencing misguided self-care that's what's taking place every instinct in you is trying to figure out how to get to tomorrow really well but when you introduce foods that are far more rich in calories than have ever existed in human history when you introduce substances that have never existed in human history and when you make access to them as easy as they are today your guidance system has no understanding that this change in the environment has, has occurred and is being fooled it is being misguided into believing that somehow you've found something you found the, the, the golden goose of, long, uh, of survival. Oh my gosh, this thing has a thousand calories per bite. That's fantastic. That's got to be the right thing to do. Oh my gosh, this substance takes pain away. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, what a phenomenal thing. What a mm-hmm. solution to pain. We must do this again. Mm-hmm. You're not broken because you're attracted to these uh, uh, decisions. In fact, you're attracted to them because you're whole. It is the exact right response your psychology should be having to an environment you were never supposed to live in. That's really important to understand because so many people are sold the story that the reason why they're addicts is because they're weak, mm-hmm. or they have no willpower, or they have no discipline, or they don't care about themselves. Oh my gosh, what a horrible message to tell someone. Mm-hmm. The whole reason why they continue to do it is because their biology believes it's caring for them. Right. Your whole reason for being, your whole body's purpose is to care for you. But its ability to care for you has been misguided because the environment is terribly wrong for you. That's what's happening. Mm-hmm. So when I uh, guide people, I see that a lot of their preconception, like negative beliefs, uh, sadly came from their parents mm. or like their close friends. And then, yeah. you know, I'm sure now that you like totally transform your life and now you are a trainer and guide and mentor you really save so many people's lives with your own experience with your own miracles Uh, I wonder how you've been having your own uh, how you had your own healing process in terms of forgiving those people like impact on your negative way one of the things I, I told my mom and my dad was um that uh, number one, I'm sorry for not understanding the only way you knew how to show your love for me. Because at the end of the day, the reason why they criticized my weight and my food choices is because 
they didn't want me to get sick. Mm. If they could have done it differently, if they knew how to do it differently, they would have, but they didn't. So they did the what, what they knew how to do. Mm. First, you have to accept that perhaps your ability to hear what they really wanted to say wasn't very good. This doesn't, this doesn't say that I, I condone what they did, but I forgive them for not knowing any other way to do it. Mm. That's okay. I don't, I, I don't think what they did was right, but I also know that they weren't trying to intentionally harm me, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's really important. You mm -hmm. know, I think forgiveness, surrendering, it's not a resignation. It's not a condone. It's not you condoning the behavior that happened to you. It's letting you know that that part of your life will no longer impact how you show up in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's very powerful. If you can actually do it, it's not an easy thing to do. But if you can do it, that part of your story will never show up again in the same way when similar situations occur. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, that trigger, that need to, to protect and to, to flee or fight, it's just not going to be the same signal anymore. It'll always be there. Like You can't undo what's done to you. Right. But the signal doesn't have to be so loud that you can't make a, a rational decision anymore. That is very powerful. <laughs> Thank you. So you yeah. probably really practiced how to change yeah. those inner voices. That I, try I, to, I try to be very careful with myself. Because um, mm. look, I'm not perfect. I get I get it wrong a lot. That's mm. fine. Like I said, I don't mind being wrong. You know, I, I want to learn from it. That's all. Um, but I try to be as as um as kind to myself as possible. And instead of saying, why did I do it wrong? I try to ask myself, why did doing it that way make sense to me today? Mm -hmm. Then it's like, oh, I get it now. It's because instead of pausing and mm -hmm. like allowing myself the opportunity to create space between what happened and how I responded, I just reacted to it. Mm -hmm. I need to try and not do that next time. That's mm -hmm. going to be a better option for me. Maybe instead of, you know, trying to respond immediately, maybe I should leave, go for a walk. Mm -hmm. Then come back and say, hey, listen, we need to talk about what just happened, right? It's instead of being so judgmental of who you are, try to look at how you behaved and say, okay, that system of behavior doesn't serve my goals. Mm -hmm. I need to try a different system of behavior. Maybe the one you try next time won't also won't be the right one, but at least you've eliminated one way of doing it that doesn't serve you, right? Like I said, be a, a researcher, an explorer, an experimenter. And I think this is great. This comes from Doug Lyle. He talks about, he uses this analogy. In 1969, uh, we had the Apollo mission to the moon, okay? Where we took humans from earth. We developed unbelievable technology. We put them into this technology. They blasted off into space. They navigated to the moon. They landed on the moon. And then they got out and walked on the moon. This is an unbelievable thing that was done. Oh, my goodness. You must have thought they would have it all figured out. They would never let them leave in that rocket if they didn't know exactly what to do and how to do it. Do you know what percentage of the flight time they were actually on course? percent. <laughs> well, <my> <laughs> now, here's the thing. If you were to look at that data and go, wow, they spent 98% of the time off course, what was wrong with them? But here's what's actually what was happening. They spent 98% of the time course correcting. Mm -hmm. 
they spent 98% of the time figuring out how to land safely on the moon. If you're on the process of changing your life, 98% of this journey is going to be constant course corrections. It's going to recognize, oh, this doesn't look like a safe direction to go. Let's go this way. Hang on a second. This doesn't feel safe anymore. Let's go this direction. <laughs> By the time you get there, the course corrections are going to be very small. In the beginning, they're going to be big. They're going to be right. very big. Right. But as you get closer to your target, mm -hmm. they tend to be like this. Mm -hmm. And then you get there safely. Allow yourself the permission mm -hmm. to course correct. Mm -hmm. Allow yourself the permission to say, that's what's supposed to be taking place right now. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be figuring out which direction is a mm -hmm. safe direction and which direction isn't a safe direction. Mm -hmm. There is never going to be a person who goes, all right, I'm struggling with drug use. I'm going to get sober. And then they just get it. Mm -hmm. That would be weird. Yeah. That would be the <laughs> peculiar story. No, every single one of these people has to figure out how to live their life well without substances. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you're describing uh, this, I could feel the amount of self-love that you have to continuously visit yeah. and keep growing so that you can like really make through the whole journey. So that mm -hmm. is so, uh, that is very inspirational and so powerful. So thank, thank you so much for sharing that story. My pleasure. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. When someone is hurting, mm -hmm. they will do almost anything to be something other than what they are, which is in pain, right? So if you are in pain, if your life is painful, and right now as a response to that pain, substance use is something that you're holding on to tightly, it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because the relief that that behavior offers you is so great that it feels like the right thing to do. You're not broken because you feel. You feel because you're whole. It's what you do. In fact, we are unique in our capacity, not our capacity to feel. We don't feel things that uniquely different than other species of animal on the planet, but our capacity to articulate our feelings is unique. Hmm. Our ability to tell someone how we feel is unique to our species of animal than other species on the planet. We're the only species of animal on the planet that can accurately articulate exactly how we feel and how we think tomorrow might feel for us. That can feel painful, but it's also your superpower. It's also your ability to lean into a loved one and let them know exactly what's going on. That's, that's a unique gift that you can use to keep yourself moving in the right direction. If you know someone who's willing to help you, ask them for help. If you don't, ask someone to help you find someone who can help you. You know, when I tell my story, it seems like I did this whole thing on my own, but I'm telling you, I didn't. The reason why I'm here today is because I sit on a pedestal of privilege. Uh, I had a family who was willing to say, we will welcome you back at the end of this. We want you back. We love you. We want all, only the best things for you. And you can do this for as long as you need until it feels safe for you. That is a very, very privileged gift that I was given. 
what that means is if there were days when it felt really hard and I didn't want to do it, I could call my family and they would pick me up and help me move through my day. Depression, anxiety, and addiction thrive in isolation. But they get their ass kicked by community. If you can find two or three people who will love you, whether you're using or you're not, who will love you when your days are hard and when you've got it going easy, your chances for success are astronomically better. Um, I've lost six friends to suicide and overdose since getting sober. And they certainly didn't want recovery any less than I did. I think that those individuals weren't privileged with the opportunities that I had. They felt very alone. They didn't feel like there was, maybe they didn't feel like there was a community that was waiting for them. And maybe their future didn't feel safe to them. They didn't lose that battle because they had a disease. They lost that battle because for them alone, it was too hard to fight. So the number one thing I ask anybody to do, if you love someone who's struggling, is to just remind them how much you love them every day. That's it. I feel the message from, from my heart. Um, <clears throat> thing I helped few people, and I have to tell you, honestly, it wasn't easy for me to help them. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, sometimes I, I think I did my best from where I was at, uh, but the amount of pain that they were going through and they feel such isolation and loneliness confusion there was no support include their family members and friends mm -hmm. uh, so I know how hard it is for them to go through every single day uh, and it is so powerful to hear your sharing you know find somebody ask for help yeah. or if you don't have anybody who could support you find somebody to, to yeah. you know introduce oh. Call, uh, um, call a support line. The, mm -hmm. Those people, they have decided that what they want to do their, spend their time doing mm -hmm. is being a voice, uh, mm -hmm. uh, being an ear for, for you to talk to. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Johan Hari, he's a British journalist who wrote an amazing book called Lost Connections. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, what if depression isn't a disease? What is a form of grief for your life not being as it should? Mm -hmm. What if it makes sense? He also says, and I love this quote, what if loneliness isn't the physical absence of people, but it's the sense that you have nothing of value to share with anyone. Mm -hmm. Our, we are creatures who need others. Mm -hmm. um, just as uh, he says that, like this, just as bees have evolved to need a hive, humans have evolved to need a tribe. Mm -hmm. If you were to take a bee out of its hive and put it in a jar alone, it would start behaving really strangely. Mm. But not a single person would look at that bee and go, wow, that bee must have some kind of chemical imbalance going on in its brain. Why else would it act that way? But for some reason, we've decided to convince people that when we isolate humans and they behave strangely, that there's something wrong with them. No, what's happened is you've been cut off from everything that makes life feel meaningful, which is a sense of being a part 
of a community of shared respect with a purpose and a mission that can be of service to you and the people around you. To be have enough connection to the natural world and to have a future that feels safe and makes sense to you. I mean, listen, we have been creatures in nature without language longer than we have been creatures out of nature with language. Being in nature is important. Right. It's very important. And I, I, I think that a person who's isolated away from the natural world long enough will have a sense of longing for something that isn't there. And so everything about getting back to what it means to be uh, uh, a truly human and, and a part of uh, uh, an animal that's earth connected is one, got to move your body enough. You have to move it enough, right? You have to eat foods that look like what was representative of your natural history and your natural behavior, right? Mostly whole plant foods. You have to be in close proximity with others that care about you and that you can share some kind of valuable and meaningful uh, experience with. Whatever it is, it just has to be shared. It doesn't have to be one specific thing, but whatever that thing is, it has to be shared with other people. Mm-hmm. That will be a huge part of you, uh, you know, feeling like you're getting back to feeling a, a part of the goings on of the world. Mm-hmm. So I think self-destruction to self-love and self-care and the relationship that you had uh, with your own self, with self-destruction to self-love, and how they can also shift with people around you, how -hmm. you can build that healthy relationship, the harmonious relationship with others, and how you can find the meaning about building relationship is good for me. Yeah, I would like to hear from from you how how, how did you make that uh, positive yeah. changes in relationship? Well, I started simply, right? So number one, remember I was in, I was supported. I spent 10 months in recovery. So I was in therapy for, you know, five days a week for three months. I was in a sober living facility. Um, but I started simply by creating a, a very simple and obvious solution to one problem in my life, which was I wanted my body to feel well. So I decided I was going to make every action, every, all my attention was going to be focused towards how do I restore a sense of wellness within my body? Mm-hmm. So I adopted this plant-based diet and in about three months, I started to get very, very clear signaling that this was going very well, right? I was losing weight, getting off medications. So I got a sense, seems like I may have figured something out. Seems like I may have figured out how to care for my health and my wellness mm-hmm. with ease and repeatability. That sense motivated me. I wanted to know how far that change could go. I wanted to now know, all right, now I've figured out how to care for my well, my physical wellness. I wanted to know how I could create purpose. So I just went out and volunteered everywhere. Uh-huh. I volunteered at soup kitchens. I volunteered in recovery centers. I, vol- I, I moved to Nepal for a year and lived in an orphanage, uh-huh. right? I wanted to be of service so much that at the end of the day, Whatever it was that I was doing that made me feel alive, that was important, right? Instead of like trying to find things to distract myself, I wanted to be so selfless that I found out what mattered most to me. So I gave myself the opportunity to discover, hey, guess what? It really matters to me helping people understand why their depression and anxiety is happening. Why does it make so much sense? I really wanted to help people with that really wanted to help people reverse disease. Mm -hmm. Wanted to understand, I'm not unique. I'm not that special, not unique. 
So I found a purpose, a mission. I was going to use nutrition. I was going to use mental health. I was going to combine the two. I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I wanted to do that thing. So I had, I had taken uh, two of the loving and meaningful bonds and I've reconnected them. One, a loving and meaningful bond with myself physically that I wanted to show up and be present for every single day. Number two, a loving and meaningful bond with a purpose that I could share with a community of shared respect that I wanted to show up and be present for every single day. The next was I needed to find my tribe. I needed to find people that looked, who had a life that looked like mine. I went out and I found it. Was it easy? No, but I did it. Great. So now I had another one, a loving and meaningful bond with people in your life that you want to show up for. You want to be present for every single day. I started trail running so I could be in nature. A loving and meaningful bond with the natural world that I want to show up for and be present every single day. As a result of these loving and meaningful bonds being reconnected, I started to get a sense that my future was an exciting place to be. So now a loving and meaningful bond with a future that makes safe, that makes sense and feels mm -hmm. safe. And I want to show up for and be present every single day. With all of those loving and meaningful bonds connected, mm -hmm. use was now no longer necessary. And the reason why is if I used, these bonds were not there anymore. I couldn't be present for them. And these loving and meaningful bonds were so exciting to me that I would rather not use so I could be present with them than use and not be present with them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It but, took a long time. It took you know, over a year to do, but it's worth it. Mm -hmm. So do you feel now, you know, you seem like you have a mission. Yes. <laughs> now yeah. it became a mission <laughs> yeah. to deliver that message to, you know, many people. Very much so. You feel yeah. the purpose. So um, my question, you know, I, I've been practicing Taoism and Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So the meaning about life and death. So I'm sure it became very different for you. Uh, yeah. What it means. Yeah. You know, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm only 41 years old. Um, but uh you know, surviving what I've, what I've, what I survived my suicide attempt, um, having lost friends at, who were in their twenties, uh, to suicide and overdose, um, and, and, and having lost family members early to disease. Um, and, uh, as a result of marrying my now wife, who has a beautiful message that she says to me, and she says, um, I wish our culture could recognize that aging is a privilege. You know, um, I have, there's six friends of mine that would love to complain about being in their forties. Um, there are six friends of mine that would love to complain about the struggles of getting their wife pregnant. Um, there are, um, Six friends of mine that would love to hate to lose their hair. Um, all of these things don't, that they, they'll never get to do, they're a privilege. And we demonize them. We demonize aging. We make it something we don't want. And um, I want to know what it feels like to be 85, have maybe four hairs on my head, have my body covered in wrinkles, wake up in my bed next to my wife who's in her 80s, call my grandkids, 
have them run every bit of energy out of me by noon. I want, I want the privilege of complaining about all those things I do. I want to love all of it. Um, and so I think that um, shifting that perspective for me has been very powerful. Um, if we could learn to appreciate the privilege of a long life, I think we would, um, it's not easy. Everyone's, everyone's got an ego. Everyone's got this, you know, oh, I don't want my hair to go gray yet and all that stuff. But it's like, oh man, I got, I got, there's so many people who would love the opportunity to complain about their hair going gray. <laughs> um, and so I, I try, I try my best to live in alignment with that, with that perspective, um, that loving your body isn't so much loving what it looks like, but loving what it still can do for you. Um, that it is your opportunity to be present in this world is that you have a body that's alive. Um, and that everything that you love and everything that you love to do is a result of having a body that you get to wake up and live in and be present for. Um, and so what I try to help people do is learn how to engage and, and, um, and adopt behaviors that care for their body's opportunity to make it to 90. I don't care if you squat a thousand pounds. It's not my goal. It's not my goal for you. If it's your goal, wonderful. But I'm not interested in, in helping you lose weight fast or helping you do this fast. I, I want you to live long. And I want you to live well. And I want you to feel safe. And so I'm trying my best. I don't know how well, you know, I don't know everything. I, I do know some things really well, um, but I but I do know that um, my perspective on life is very, very different having gone through what I've gone through. And I don't expect people to understand it if they haven't gone through what I've gone through. But um, I just wish that, uh, I, I wish that our culture could understand the privilege that old age is. Yeah. So as you're sharing about your thoughts and feelings about life and death, um, I didn't get a chance to share with you my story. Uh, so my brother passed uh, when he was 35 with a car accident. Mm -hmm. And then I, I think I was late 20s. And it was, no one was prepared for that. And it was such a shocking <clears throat> life event that uh, he was not only my physical brother, but also my mentor and my friend. So it was a big shock. And yeah. <clears throat> after that uh, uh, accident, both mom and dad was suffering so much with depression. And like it was a, 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 a miserable, I would say like 10 years. It just like didn't end the grief and the sorrows and the sadness in the family didn't end it includes my own, my own life. So I think I fight with myself not to feel the sadness and numb myself. But then there's so much obligation and responsibility every day that I have to wake up. I have to work. I have to do, you know, what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. So it's such a fighting, uh, such a big fight uh, internally. And then finding uh, the meaning of life and purpose of life 
and the value of life, uh, that was really difficult for me. And some yeah. point, since I lost my brother and also my father with the heart surgery, it didn't work well. Uh, I was also kind of judgmental about people who are abusing their life. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. How did... <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, there's a great quote. I think you'll like this. And I think this is really true. I, and it goes like this. People are not so much looking for the meaning of life as much as they are so much looking for the experience of feeling alive. Mm. Um, I think that uh, being aliveness is a feeling. Right. Uh, it's when when you're when you're in that moment where all of your senses are are fully activated and right. you're you're hearing you're right now and you're not five minutes from now you're certainly not five minutes before you're not a year from now you're not thinking about a year before you're right here and you're right now and that is everything that is happening that is a that that's that's what people I think so much are are looking for is that that sense of aliveness. And I get it. You know, I also get the, what you talked about where the feeling of sadness that you come are overcome with uh, when you think about your brother, when you think about your father. Uh, my wife lost her mother to cancer six years ago. And uh, so she's, she's learned to grieve really well. Um, grieving isn't something you feel, it's something that you do. Um, because grief is a combination of a lot of feelings feel angry you feel sad you feel anxious you feel you know all these different things that that you do when you grieve and she has a beautiful quote she says uh, grief uh grief is a very sacred experience it is the receipt for having loved ah so um you know when you are overwhelmed with uh like um, my friends, I'm mentioning my friends who have passed. I hope I never have a day I wake up and don't miss them. I hope I never wake up and don't feel sad. They deserve every ounce of it. You know? Um, it's a wonderful thing to grieve for someone, to grieve the loss of someone, especially if you grieve them for a long time. What that what that tells you about who they were for you. Right, right, exactly. You know? I thought I will say a couple of years not to feel that grief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I worked so it's hard. Not a comfortable thing. I did not allow myself to sleep and rest. Mm -hmm. And so hard that I just need to pass out literally. Yeah. And then not grieving. And it took me a courage and and trust that it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. So allow yourself yeah. to feel. And look, some of these things are very hard to deal with on your own. Some right. of them you should deal with on your own. <laughs> you, know, you should you should absolutely find someone, yeah. um, a therapist, uh, a, a counselor, a, a healer, someone who who can help you carry this. Because I don't think we've ever been a culture in no. history that mm -hmm. has ever asked anyone to do this on their own. Mm -hmm. Grieving was a community thing uh that's that's my perception of, of when you look at you know uh you know you look throughout our history uh loss people didn't people didn't grieve alone yeah yeah <laughs> i'm so happy that we could have uh such a vulnerable topic today <laughs> me, too. me too 
Um, yeah, I would say grieving helped me to be who I am of now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Without and, question. Yes. Yeah. And there was a part of my self-love and self-trust and self-respect and just honor whatever I feel and it's okay. Yeah. And allowing me to, to just be and, mm -hmm. you know, create my life, you know, day to day. Yeah. And just, you Heard, know. Um, I can't remember who it was that said this. Um, they said, um, um, oh, I believe it was Jordan Peterson. Well, I, I find him to be very smart. I don't always agree with everything he has to say, but I find him to be quite brilliant. He said, um, don't ever underestimate the hole your absence will leave. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that's a very, it's a very great comment to make because as i mentioned before um you don't know what your what your presence in the world could offer someone in five years right you don't know what the your presence in the world could offer someone in 20 years and don't take that away from that person you know i know your life is hard trust me whoever you are who's listening right now i know believe me i know how hard your life can be and 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 i know your life can very easily be much harder than mine has ever been but man, uh, I I believe in you. Um, I'm rooting for you. Um, you are you are everything that is happening to you makes sense. You are you're not a mistake. You're not biology and psychology gone wrong. You're not. And don't let anyone convince you that you are. And don't believe yourself a failure if you do have to rely on on medication for a short period of time. If feeling what you're feeling right now is hard and an antidepressant helps you uh, to change your life so you can get all those antidepressants in a couple of years, do not ever let anyone make you feel ashamed for making that decision. This is your life. You don't owe anyone anything except yourself and the truth. You don't owe anything to anyone except yourself and the truth. And if right now, truth is that medications make you feel better in the short term, like antidepressants, if they keep you alive today and tomorrow, please take them and also then go actively change your life so that you don't need them over the course of time. But uh, I'll end I'll end with a quote. Um, ah, this is always going to be so hard for me. Um, my One of my friends who I lost, and I didn't lose him to suicide, and I, I didn't even lose him to overdose. I lost him to um, uh, complications and surgery. Uh, he was a very... Uh, inspiring human. His name is David Clark. He was a 320-pound alcoholic turned um, vegan uh, ultra runner. He was one of the best ultra runners in the country in the world. So he lost, you know, 150 pounds. He he run these 200-mile races, and he's amazing. He's a very inspiring person. He had a, a, a saying that I thought was amazing. We've all heard people say, "Hey, listen, you want to be happy." You just need to live like it's the last day of your life. And he said, listen, I'm going to show you how wrong that is. If this were the last day of your life, you wouldn't probably go to work. You wouldn't probably go for a run. You wouldn't probably go to the grocery store. You wouldn't probably write that letter that you need to write for someone or whatever. You wouldn't do all the things that are necessary in order to make your life keep going. He said, if you really want to be happy... Just treat everyone you meet as if they were living the last day of their life. And um, 
So I love to leave everyone with a little bit of David Clark. Just try it. Just try that for one week and see how you feel. Thank you so much. God, you share, you share so many good messages that I have to literally hold my tears. So hard. I knew it's going to be so hard for me. Oh my God. Um, so, you know, I am really thankful for the time that you spent, you know, me and my audience. Uh, my last question will be, so, you know, it, it became your mission to share this message with many. So yeah. what, what do you see yourself doing in five to uh, three to five years? What is your vision? Yeah. That's, that's a great question. Um, I've started recently working with um, the Kennedy Forum. Uh, which is um, a an organization to help public policy around addiction change. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really excited to do that. Um, uh, I'm also um, hoping to do more lecturing around um, nutrition and addiction and nutrition and mental health and really just in, in addiction in general, like really trying to get rid of the story that addiction is this, you know, disease that some people get and some people don't. Um, and um, and I hope to be a dad in five in less than five years. Yay. So, yeah. <laughs> so congratulations for your marriage. Thank oh, you so much. So yeah. beautiful. She's so, amazing. Thank you so much for um, uh, being present uh, with our podcast, Heal Yourself with Michelle. It really means more to me. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm very, very honored. Thank you for making it to the end of this video. If you found this video helpful, please take a moment to share with somebody who can benefit. You're helping my project of healing 1 million people. Thank you, and I will see you in the next video.